The Sermon on the Mount. Though it was delivered on the side of a hill one day in Israel, its power, truth, and simplicity have pierced through every century since. His divinely inspired words are not only timeless, they are timely for us. We hope you will join us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Good morning. You look so well rested. It's that one Sunday a year. My wife, Hannah, is out of town. She's actually in Georgia seeing her family, so I've been a functional single father this week. So the Lord was so gracious and saw fit to give me an extra hour of sleep this morning. So here I am. I made it. You made it as well. Uh, For those of you with small kids or toddlers, uh, we're sorry. They normally don't cooperate as well on uh, Time Change Sunday as everyone else. So uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I'll remind you that there are some free Bibles in the lobby, uh, and we also have some of our Matthew um, study guides uh, journals uh, out there in the lobby. If you want to grab one of those, you can use that week in and week out uh, as we work our way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And if you're joining us through video or through the audio podcast this week, special welcome to you. And also want to invite you, if you're in Midland, to come join us uh, in person. Things are so much better in person. Uh, Like I would assume an Astros game, uh, as good as it might be, uh, watching or listening, probably better in person, although I did not go. Some of you did. Any Astros fans out there? It's okay. We're here for Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, just straight out of the gate, letting you know what's going on. Some of you have been reading ahead, so you know Jesus is about to teach on uh, adultery and lust. And uh, just as a reminder, he is preaching to probably... Thousands of people uh, of all ages, probably a lot of kids running around, and I, from my vantage point, read through and think through and study through and imagine what is it going to be like opening this up and preaching these things. I imagine there were some people uh, that were there that day that had some interesting responses and probably some critiques uh, for Jesus. I'm sure some people leaned over and said, hey, doesn't he know this is a private issue that shouldn't be talked about uh, in public, that maybe he should be talking about things like this in a much uh, smaller setting. Uh, Doesn't Jesus know, did nobody tell him there are certain things that are just intrusive and they should be off limits to us? Uh, Maybe somebody leaned over and said, does Jesus not know that there are children here, that there are kids present and they're going to hear some things um, that then we are going to have to go home and talk about, which as a side note, I think that probably needs to happen more than it does. I think especially if Jesus is going, he knows all this, and yet he preaches and teaches on some very, very um, difficult topics and mature things. And uh, so I think it's, uh, especially for the parents in the room, uh, it, you can never really start too early teaching your things because the culture is teaching them, Hollywood is teaching them, uh, they're learning things uh, that are not godly about um, their, their eyes and what they should watch and what they should value. And so from an early age, they need to hear uh, the, 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 the church speak up, Christian parents speak up, and so Jesus speaks up. So I could just imagine there's somebody like, I don't know, Jesus, are, are you supposed to be doing it this way? Uh, Jesus, don't you know that if you want to like build a church, then you can't like say things that might make people uncomfortable or offend them because Jesus, we came here to, for you to help us feel good about ourselves. To all these things to which Jesus would say, 
uh, I'm going to teach the truth because Jesus loves the truth and knows that we need the truth more than we need to not be uh, offended or challenged. Amen. So Jesus is going to say what he needs to say. And so we're going to unpack that and preach that here this morning because Jesus loves you and me too much to not tell us the truth. And you need a God like that. You need a Savior like that that can be open and can be honest and talk about the, the real things and the real issues that we are dealing with. Now, Jesus's preaching, just to zoom out, not even just the Sermon on the Mount, but like the, the teaching and preaching catalog, if you will, from Jesus has revolutionized the world more than anybody else. I mean, what he did and what he taught has, has, has flipped the world on its head, uh, has changed a lot of uh, cultural values, has no doubt changed individual lives. Uh, and a few things I think are helpful before we jump into this, to, just to understand the, the way that Jesus preached. Because some people were so caught off guard at his authority, right? If you've read through the New Testament, you see this pop up a handful of places that people hear Jesus and like, this guy preaches with a different authority than we have ever heard. We've heard some people preach. We've heard some people open the Old Testament and try to teach it and try to connect the dots. And But Jesus, like he, he's in a whole nother category. He's preaching as almost as if he wrote the book, right? Which in fact, he did. Okay, he existed before creation. Genesis 1, John 1, both talk about he was the word um, that was sent out um, before creation what, what was ever uh, called into existence, that he, Jesus, wrote the book. And so he, was, he, he preached with an authority that was a, a, a unique thing. And, and maybe for you as well, maybe when you finally got into uh, the New Testament, reading what Jesus said or hearing good gospel, Bible-centered preaching that preaches with the authority of God's word, uh, that has just a different effect on people. That Jesus isn't guessing what the word of God means. He is definitively saying as the author uh, what it means. And so he, he spoke with a, a strange and a unique authority uh, that set him apart. And secondly, and I want to I unpack this for a moment. Jesus preached very uh, pointedly and yet very differently to people that are on different ends of this spectrum, okay? And the spectrum that uh, I'm going to use to explain this, uh, everybody on the spectrum, which is every human being that's ever existed except for Jesus, the, the spectrum is sinner, right? We're, we're all sinners. We all need to be saved. But we have very different ways that that kind of show up uh, and problems that we encounter. So one end of the spectrum I'll talk about is kind of just people that are just overtly uh, sinners. They are just sinning out in public and everybody knows. And the other end of this spectrum is those that are self-righteous, okay? Still sinners, they just have a different challenge. And Jesus preaches, some, it's the same gospel, it's the same message, but he's trying to do very different things uh, with these types of people. Um, the self-righteous people, he's trying to just, I mean, get up in their face and their business to tell them they're not nearly as good as they think they are and they need a savior. He's trying to crush their pride. And when he preaches, he gets very intense. If you want to read this, read Matthew chapter 23. I mean, he is attacking the people that think they have no need for Jesus. They're fine. They're good. They're moral people. They don't need a savior. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them a tomb full of dead men's 
bones. He's trying to attack their self-sufficiency and their self-righteousness. But the other end of the spectrum, his preaching towards those who were just overtly broken, many of them were, had, had been tossed aside by the culture, especially the religious folks of the day. He was preaching to them, not, not, not the same the same message, same gospel, but a different way to the self-righteous. He was trying to tell them they need him. He's trying to convey the idea that they need to come to him, and he tries to convey to the broken that they can come to him. He offers grace and forgiveness and hope that Though everyone else has tossed them aside, you think about the woman that was caught uh, in adultery. You think about uh, tax collectors that were ripping their neighbors off and stealing their money. His preaching was so pointed towards people's barriers between him and the gospel that a lot of people, a lot of the religious people had never been talked to that way. They had never had someone call them out on the sin in their hearts. And so when Jesus does, they get so upset, some of them will find a way to execute him and shut him up. Some of them will be softened by the gospel and respond in repentance and faith. And some of these people had never truly heard about grace and forgiveness. And when Jesus like invites them in to join his team, it's like so brand new. And some of them uh, just wrote Jesus off and kept living their lives. And some of them responded in repentance and faith. Same gospel, he just preached in a way that was very pointed towards those who were listening. And the third thing that I think is uh, incredible about not just Jesus' preaching, but very specifically the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus' preaching was very applicable to everyone. So I, I'm guessing a lot of these people had maybe heard a sermon or maybe been to quote-unquote church before. Uh, maybe they'd been to the temple and they heard somebody uh, open up the Old Testament, but they were just saying, hey, God said don't murder, God said don't commit adultery. And so they're like, well, I've I don't really feel like I'm on the verge of murdering or committing adultery, so I don't even know that this applies to me, which is a lot of people's story in the West. Like, I've been to church, I've listened to preaching, I've heard a lot of things, but I have no idea. Like, it just doesn't seem to connect with my life on Monday morning. And what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount is he's grabbing God's commands and he's pulling them down and very, very practically showing all of us how this is actually very applicable to us. So if you were here last week, it's like there's a command that says don't murder. You might think, well, that's, I don't, I'm just not at risk of doing that this week. Jesus says, oh, it's actually talking about the way that you talk about people and anger. And very quickly, people are like, oh, this actually applies to me. This is actually very helpful. So all of that put together, just Jesus's teaching connects God's word and, and, and people's hearts in a way that has just changed the face of the globe, probably changed your life, definitely has changed mine. And so we started last week working through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that's called the ant, ant, antithesis or the antithesis, where Jesus is taking things that people had heard. And so, right, there's a difference we talked about between when Jesus says, it is written, when that, that's him referring to God's word. And when he says it is written, then he just really unpacks and preaches like this is what God said and this is what we need to know and do. But this section he says, not it is written, but you have heard, okay? And you need to know those are very different, right? <laughs> it is written in the Bible and someone told you it's in the Bible sometimes are very, very different things. So this section, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, 
And then he either fixes it because it was wrong or he drills down deeper to help us understand what the true intent of God's word is. Last week, he said, you've heard it said don't murder, which is true, but this is what it actually means. It's it's getting down into the intent of our hearts. What it actually is talking about is uh, don't even have hate in your heart for a brother or a sister. So he's going to do the same thing today. He's going to take um, the seventh commandment, which um, no doubt the first century Jewish audience had heard it and, and perhaps read it and heard it preached on and heard it, they've memorized it. Jesus is going to take that and he's going to drill down into the true intent of God's desire for that commandment that is going to be applicable to all of us, Okay. So, if you are ready to hear what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, as loud as you can, say ready. Ready. All right, here's God's word. It says this in red letters from the mouth of Christ himself. You have heard that it was said, quote, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that's a good quote. They nailed it. That's the seventh commandment, accurate so far. You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, and he doesn't change it. It's it's not that he says, I say to you, they were wrong, commit adultery, right? He's going to say, I'm going to get down to the bottom of the intent of this. But I say to you that everyone, how many people? Got to do better than that. How many people? Men, women, kids, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Probably at that point, people in the audience or the crowd maybe hopefully leaned in. We we don't know, but Jesus is getting real serious real quick. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's what Jesus teaches on this specific command about adultery. Uh, Three things that I want to unpack for the next few moments. Number one, what did Jesus actually teach Two, why does he teach this? Why did he go out of his way to take this subject and put it into the most famous sermon ever heard? And then three, how should we respond? Okay, so what did Jesus actually teach? Why did he teach it? And how should we respond to what he said? So number one, what did Jesus teach in these few verses that we just read? Uh, A lot of things, honestly, but uh, we'll pull out four very specific things that Jesus taught uh, in this section to his followers. Just as a reminder, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon given from Jesus to his disciples, to people who had already chosen to follow him. Number one, you need to know this, write this down. What did Jesus teach? He taught, number one, that adultery is more than just action, okay? Adultery is more than just a physical action on the outside. Jesus is going to say it actually is something that takes place in the heart. He says, uh, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. So we need to talk about what is lustful intent. It sounds like a pagan rock band, I think. Uh, if, uh, if you start seeing ads where, oh, lustful intent is coming to Wagner Noel, uh, don't go. Uh, nothing good can come of that. Sounds like a pagan rock band, but it's not lust. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. 
okay? Uh, a few things that we need to know about this. The, the word that Jesus chooses to use for looks um, is a, a present active participle, which for those of you who just love English and grammar, you already know what that means. Uh, for the rest of us, what that means is that Jesus very literally said, for those who keep on looking, it's not that you look one time, it's that you fix your eyes on someone with lustful intent. You don't look and say, oh, that's a, a, a beautiful woman, that's a, a handsome man, and then you turn away. It's like you look and then you just keep on looking with lustful intent, which lustful intent very um, very accurately to what Jesus is saying, is some type of sexual desire or impure thoughts. And he says, if that's you, if you've ever looked at a woman, or I would say a man, with lustful intent to think impure thoughts, then Jesus says, you're, you're under the same banner of, of that command, do not commit adultery, because it's more than just committing a sin on the outside Jesus is very concerned, and you see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He is very concerned with what takes place in our hearts. So it's not a glance, it's a fixed gaze on someone. He's basically urging his disciples because he has already talked about them receiving a new heart uh, from Jesus. The gospel gives us a brand new heart. He's teaching us how to truly protect uh, our heart by protecting our eyes and really protecting uh, even some, some people around us perhaps. Number one, Jesus teaches that uh, uh, adultery is more than just action. It has to do with what takes place through our eyes and our heart. Number two, what did, what did Jesus teach? That sexual sin, especially in this case, adultery and lust, have incredible consequences, Okay. I want to read to you from uh, um, Dr. Quarles, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago, wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount uh, that I've been leaning pretty heavily on these past few weeks. Uh, this is what he says about this, uh, this idea in, in these verses. He says, Jesus' teaching demonstrates, you know, but, but let me just kind of, before I read this, just kind of throw out, like, who is this sermon? Who is Jesus trying to, to reach? Is he just trying to reach young men in their 20s? Or is this sermon actually applicable to everyone? And I would make the case this sermon is applicable to everyone. I saw a study just a few weeks ago that for the first time in recorded history, for whatever that's worth, uh, more, more women than not, the majority of women, over 50%, struggle with some type of lust or pornography. So this is not just a, a man issue. This is a human issue. And so Coral says this. He says, Jesus' teaching demonstrates that a lifestyle of sexual sin, which you know the stats as well as I do, it's incredibly, staggeringly high the number of people in our culture that have an addiction to pornography or have an addiction to lust through pornography. So Jesus' teaching demonstrates that a lifestyle of sexual sin leads to spiritual downfall and its consequences will be eternal punishment. Although contemporary culture, Coral says, now views sexual sin very casually, I would add even normally celebrates it. What Jesus condemns, the culture celebrates. He says, even though... Contemporary culture now views sexual sin very casually because of its rampancy. Jesus insisted that such sin was terribly dangerous and urged others to repent and abandon such lifestyles immediately. Jesus teaches that it's more than just action. It has to do with our heart, and he teaches that it has incredible consequences. Number three, what did Jesus teach? He taught through the 
the, the metaphors that he uses about gouging your eye out and cutting your hand off, he taught that we should be, and I, I didn't know exactly what word to use here, so I, I, I'm using three. Um, we should be intense, serious, or radical. I think those all kind of carry the same idea. We should be very intense, very purposeful, very radical, very um, serious in our battle for purity. I mean, if you read through this, you're like, oh, Jesus is serious. That's what he teaches. We should be very intense uh, about, uh, about this. Uh, I, I've looked through a lot of different people and their commentators trying to uh, explain what Jesus was saying. And most of them, when they get to the portion where Jesus says, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, commentators try to do their best to soften that a little bit and to knock off some of the rough edges, uh, which I think is a disservice to what Jesus was trying to do. Uh, Jesus is trying at some level to have a shock value that shocks our system to think, uh, maybe we should be, be more intense, more radical about purity and, and, and battling sin than we are because Jesus seems like it's, it's very, very important. Number four, his teaching or this example really about the hand and the eye was not literal, but it's hyperbole. And those two things are somewhat related, but different. Uh, when Jesus says, if you struggle with lust, so inside your heart, you're like, okay, that's me. He nailed it, which is probably a lot of us. Okay, that's something I struggle with. Now, what am I supposed to do? Okay, I've got to go amputate my arm or I've got to go gouge out my eye with a spoon. Why a spoon? Because it'll hurt more. Anybody? No? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there was a church father in Egypt uh, in the second century AD named Origen. You've probably heard of him before. Um, he read this and was battling with lust, and he took Jesus' teaching literally. He thought, okay, if I am struggling with this sin and I just can't seem to get over it, Jesus says to gouge out my eye, to cut off my hand. And so what Origen did to try to combat his lust problem is he rolled naked over sharp briars, okay? And then to his testimony said, that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't help. He still had lustful thoughts, so he thought, you know what? Uh, I'm still going to take Jesus' words literally. I just didn't go far enough. He went so far as to castrate himself. And then do you know what he said? It didn't work. <laughs> he, he said something very profound uh, after going to that uh, extreme. He said basically he regretted uh, that he had uh, misinterpreted Jesus' sermon. Okay? Guys in the room, if there was ever a moment to learn from someone else's mistake, uh, this is it. And what he, he came to the conclusion, he's like, oh my gosh, it actually wasn't my hand and my eye that was causing me to sin. It was my heart. It was something taking place in my heart. So Jesus is not being literal. He's using hyperbole because Jesus of all people knows where sin, especially the sin of lust and adultery begin. How do we know? Because you can fast forward in the same book, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus gives a long list of sins and he says, these things issue forth, come forth from heart. And he says, what comes out of the heart is adultery. So Jesus doesn't say that it comes from the, excuse me, the hand or the eye. His teaching was not literal. It was hyperbole. What's hyperbole? A hyperbole is something that's like, it, it's a dramatic thing that's meant to kind of shock the system to help us know that this is incredibly important. It should grab our attention and cause us to have some introspection. 
And so what then begins to be the answer is not to cut off portions of our body, but to deal with sin in a very dramatic fashion in our hearts. What did Jesus teach? Adultery is more than action. Sexual sin, especially lust and adultery, have incredible consequences. We should be intense, serious, radical in our battle for purity. And his teaching was not literal. It was hyperbole to get us to take deep action in our hearts. First thing, what did Jesus teach? Second, why does he teach it? Okay, why did Jesus go out of his way to teach something that was probably uncomfortable, probably difficult, maybe had some pushback? Um, You know that Monday was Halloween. Any parents in the room? All you do on Halloween is you just run around and you just say, stop eating candy, you've had enough, right? It's just time for bed. And uh, we took our kids to L Street, um, which is, if you've never been there in Midland, it's like the place to go. They give out full, like full candy bars. Uh, Somebody even had a live mariachi band. They were giving away Jimmy John sandwiches. Uh, It was incredible. Our kids, like at some point, my seven-year-old Hudson, he came up to me like this. He's like, you've got to hold my bucket of candy. It's too heavy. I'm like, man. God, we hit the jackpot. My kids can't even carry all the candy they have. And every now and then I just look over and what are they doing? They're eating the candy. They ate candy for hours. They didn't eat dinner. They ate candy. And I tried to put a stop to it. I was like, guys, listen, you need some protein. You need some vegetables. You need something in your body that's good because if you just keep eating candy, you're going to get sick. Did they believe me? Louder, parents. <laughs> no. <laughs> because in his brain, he's like, <laughs> It's candy. Like, what could be bad about candy? Dad is just, he's insane or he doesn't like me. I don't know what he's talking about, but there is nothing bad that can come from candy, okay? Let me fast forward you a few hours. Uh, Our kids were out of school. We were uh, on a road trip. We were out Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday morning, we get up, and I'm just excited about a a four-and-a-half-hour trip in peace my wife and my kids, and we get in, and within 30 minutes, just he's, he's throwing up um, large amounts in the back seat of the car. And I should have been more compassionate, like, let me, I was like, I told you, <laughs> I told you this was going to happen, right? Because, and let me explain why this analogy hopefully is helpful. Uh, I'm the father, he's the son. I know more than he does, and I also love him and want his life to flourish and him to to do well. And so connecting those things, I create some rules that are trying to push him towards good and flourishing because I know more than he does and I know how things are going to end. And he doesn't. He doesn't understand how there could be anything bad that could come from eating candy. It just sounds fantastic. And so at some point, he's got to come to the realization that, okay, dad loves me and his rules are actually for my good. And so even when I don't get it, I've thrown up enough to know that dad knows what he's talking about. He loves me, so I'm going to trust him and obey even when I don't understand, okay? Um, That truth probably in and of itself, will help many of us um, to, to, to obey God. Because some of us just have maybe some trust issues. You really don't believe that God knows more than you do, and he wants good for your life. And so he says something, or he gives a command, like, I don't know. 
it just sounds like he's trying to ruin my fun. And so if we just trust the heart of God through his commands and obey when it makes sense and obey when it doesn't make sense, that's the pathway to flourishing, okay? So back to the question, why does he teach it? Why does Jesus teach about lust in our hearts? Because he loves us and wants us to flourish. Do you remember when Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly? Like Jesus actually wants you to have a blessed life, an abundant and a full life, and he knows the best pathway to get there, and his commands get us there, his encouragement gets us there, his restrictions and prohibitions, they're all aimed at the same place. So why does Jesus teach about lust? Because lust is a sin which is an enemy of good and flourishing. Y'all with me? You're not gonna hear that many other places in the culture. Because it's a big money-making deal. 30% of the internet has to do with pornography from what I have uh, read. Uh, so then what, what does it actually mean? Why is lust so detrimental to Christian flourishing in the human heart and relationships and marriage? And you know this about me over the years that I just, I absolutely love when psychology or medicine or statistics eventually catch up with what God said thousands of years ago, Right? It's just like you don't have to understand that lust is bad. You just need to trust God's heart that it's sinful and therefore destroys things. Because if you try to explain this to somebody for the first time they heard, like what, what could be wrong about sex? What could be wrong about the sexual desires that I have? It's like candy. Like how could it go wrong? Turns out there's a lot of ways that it can go wrong and a lot of things that it can do that are damaging. So sin is the opposite of God's character it's the opposite of God's design for flourishing, and this one particularly is wreaking havoc on people's lives. And so Jesus is kind enough and loving enough to talk about it and to give us some rules and some guidelines about what to do with our eyes and lust in our hearts so that it doesn't have that effect on us. A couple things about why this is so important for us to hear. Sex and sexual desires and all of those things that go together with that were designed to be not just inside of marriage, but inside of a covenant. Uh, because God is a covenantal God. God's interactions with us are only through covenants. And so he, he wants, and covenant expresses fidelity. That if a Christian and God come into a covenant together, then that's um, both of us giving all of our hearts to each other solely, not spreading them out. That's why he asks us not to share a little portion of our heart with a God here and an idol there. Because he is a God of fidelity that wants uh, to be fully given to us as we are fully given to him. And so that's expressed through sexual fidelity in a marriage. And so any type of lust, any type of adultery violates that principle that we're to be given solely to God or solely to our spouse. And it just throws a piece here and a piece there. And there's, it just breaks the, the, ideal, the ideal of God's uh, covenantal nature. Also, all the impulses that lead towards either lust or adultery are, are designed to be led towards sex inside of marriage, which is designed to be selfless. Okay, when a husband and wife are married, sex inside of that relationship is designed to be a giving thing, that both are selfless, both are giving. 100% of lust and pornography is 100% selfish. 
It is all take, 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 no, give, give, give. It does not correspond with the way God has designed us to work. And then just a whole lot of other things, I think these are worth mentioning because, again, this is the world catching up to the reality that God knows what he's doing. He's wise, he knows the ends, and he wants us to flourish, and sin destroys things. Um, I'm going to use uh, lust and pornography really almost uh, synonymously, although they're not. Uh, I think you understand what I'm saying. Uh, that, that Lust is like something that takes place in our heart. Pornography is what you view that helps fuel that, which is rampant in our culture. Chemicals produced in the brain through lust and pornography are often stronger than the actual sexual encounter themselves, uh, which leads to these addictions that are very, very, very similar to uh, drug addictions. God knew that, and so he has given us uh, guidelines and parameters to keep from getting into these addiction traps. Um, There are higher rates, uh, much higher rates of depression and loneliness for those that are addicted to lust and pornography than those that are not. Why? Sin does bad things. It destroys things. Uh, The increase in divorce, if one or both... um, partner in the marriage have a problem with lust or pornography more than double. Why is that? Sin destroys things. Um, It rewires, you know, this, the neurological routes um, in our brain actually creates neuropathways that teach us to love a screen more than you love a human. That's a major problem with the way God has designed us to to, to reflect him and to function. Uh, It tons of studies. Most of these are secular studies. These are not studies done by a Christian. These are studies by someone that is just looking at reality and and the facts. Uh, They say that it robs you of the ability to deeply connect with another person, which is what God has designed us to do. It is the enemy of what God has tried to accomplish in us, not, not just in friendships, but especially in marriage, to deeply connect. You lose that ability when you walk down the path of lust and pornography. Lust and pornography dehumanizes the object. It's no longer a human being that's an image bearer of God and valuable with a life and a value and a purpose. It's an object that's designed to meet your needs. Just take from an object, not a human being. Uh, It's associated with a large range of emotional, mental, sexual, and physical uh, harms, both to self and to others. Uh, It's led to a lack of concentration uh, because it erodes the prefrontal cortex. And so over time, you you can't focus. It's hard to get your job done or or, or do any kind of of long linear thinking because you have rewired your brain that makes it hard to concentrate. It leads to impotence uh, and it leads to a loss of true sexual pleasure. So again, to, to, to pose the question to Hudson, how can candy be bad, like, well, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways. Like, sex is a, a good, incredible thing that God has made, and if it's used in the wrong manner, can be very, very detrimental. When I was having the talk, any of you have, you, you, you had the talk from your parents? Some of you are like, we don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> uh, my dad shared it to me this way. He was talking about sex, and he says, it's like a fire. If it's kept in the fireplace, it will keep the house warm, and it's all good. If it gets out of the fireplace, it's going to burn your house down. Any questions? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. Same thing. Uh, I read this quote um, from Tim Keller this week, and I think it's very applicable to, to this topic. He says this, uh, talking about how, how, how Jesus' commands, whether we understand them or not, are designed to lead us down a pathway of blessing, flourishing, and joy. 
But you have to trust that that's what he's doing. He's not just trying to ruin our fun and limit our freedom. Keller said this. He says, a fish must honor its design. It is designed for water and not land. And so real freedom comes. He says, therefore, it's not freedom from all restrictions. Rather, it's about finding the right ones. Like real freedom is not you getting a chance to do everything you want to do. Real freedom is finding out what are the best rules that will guide me on the path towards God's design. And that's what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us the rules and the guidelines that don't restrict freedom. They actually lead us towards freedom because Jesus and idols or Jesus and sin, like they both offer the same thing. That's why we choose this sometimes because Jesus says, follow me, obey me, you'll have freedom. Pornography says, "Uh, follow me, no strings attached, you'll have freedom. But who delivers freedom? You like you buy into this, and what you're going to have is shackles and bondage and addiction. It does not give any freedom. It steals the very thing it promises to give. And so Jesus gives loving rules and restrictions to lead us towards actual freedom for how he has designed us to live. Why did Jesus say this? He loves you and he knows there are some dangers out there with the external world and sin in our hearts that are going to destroy things. And so he's trying to push us back on this course of his design. Number three, how should we respond? I am running late. I'm going to run through these fairly quickly. I have seven things that I think are very um, biblical and helpful and things like if you read this, like, okay, well, that's, that's me. I realize there's like, th- this is an important deal, causes some problems. Uh, Jesus is concerned about it. What do I do? How do I respond? Number one, agree with God, okay? Number one, agree with God that sin is bad and that lust and pornography is sin. Like, this sounds very basic, but like, in, unless you get to that point, it's hard to get any further. You just got to agree with God. You know what, God, you're right, okay? Agree with God. Uh, my grandmother, every time I used to go preach somewhere, she would ask me, Jason, what are you preaching on? And uh, oftentimes, I would either say sin or Jesus. That's the only two answers I would give. And if I would say Jesus, she would say, great, are you for him or against him? And I would say for him. And she said, Jason, what are you preaching? I'd say, oh, sin. She goes, sin. Okay, great. you for it or against it? Against it, okay? All that to say, agree with God that he knows more than we do. Number two, hate your sin. Hate pornography. Hate your love. Like, hate the sin that hates you. Get angry with it. Romans 8 talks about this idea of, like, getting to the point of waging war against our sin and putting it to death. Have some strong feelings towards the things that are destroying your your life. Hate your sin. Number three, repent. Repent. That, 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 that's a turning from, it's an acknowledging of a sin, saying, Jesus, I am, I am sorry. This breaks your heart. This breaks my heart. I want to power over it. I want freedom from it. I want to turn from it. I want to turn to you. I want to trust you, not just for salvation, but for help in dealing with this. Truly repent of your sin, okay? Number four, make a decision that you will fight against sin, 
especially against lust. Make a conscious decision. Job did this uh, in the Old Testament in Job chapter 31. Do y'all remember the story? Uh, He says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look at a woman lustfully. It's like I sat down and I made a conscious decision that when I look, I'm not going to keep active participle looking. I made a covenant with my eyes that we're going to bounce on to something else. Like make a decision, maybe even write it down that that not from this point on you're going to be perfect, but we're going to be serious about fighting sin. Number five, get serious about accountability. Okay, get serious about accountability. Um, confession, James, Jesus' little brother James says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed, not forgiven. God forgives sin, but there's a special way where confession takes something that's got a lot of power over you when it's in the dark and in the secret. When you let someone know, oftentimes that breaks not all, but some of the power that the sin has in the dark. Find someone that you know, love, and trust. Confess that to them. They, they don't forgive you. There's a healing that comes with that and puts you on a pathway towards uh, some victory. Uh, get serious about accountability. Uh, we talk about fight clubs uh, a lot at Redeemer. Find one or two other people, same gender as you, that you can be honest about, that you can hold each other accountable. I've got a few men in my life that when they go out of town, they're going to stay in a hotel. They'll text me beforehand, hey, I'm going out of town. I'm staying in a hotel. I'm going to be tempted. Check in on me. That Get, get serious about accountability accountability before you know you're going to be tempted, not just after, okay? Uh, Give away your passwords, use some tools, use some covenant eyes, use some software, because Jesus gets really serious. He's like, listen, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off, get serious about dealing with lust. Number six, never give up fighting. This is not something that you just decide and you fight and then next week everything will be, be easy, like never give up fighting. We just read, Jonathan read a minute ago from Hebrews chapter 12. If you keep going, it says that you haven't yet resisted uh, sin to the point of bloodshed. He's talking about like resisting sin as part of the battle of this life. And just as an encouragement, the battle is going to be over someday. You're not going to battle sin forever. You're going to battle sin until Jesus comes back. And then that will be gone and over. And true freedom exists for those who belong to Christ. Never give up. It's not like it, it's neutral. It's like cancer. If you got cancer, you wouldn't wake up one day and be like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to fight it today. I'm just going to take a day off. Cancer doesn't take a day off. Sin and lust, they don't take a day off. There's no neutral ground. I don't remember who it was, but one pastor said, either be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's your only two options. Either be killing sin or it will be killing you in some way, form, or fashion. Number seven, and I want to end with this and I want to echo this and I want you to embrace this and internalize this, fight with grace and not with shame, okay? Because God's love for you, affection for you, acceptance of you, it's not linked to your ability to crush it on this one. Like he's not going to love you any more if you do really well. He's not going to love you any less if you don't. Like we're, 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 we're in Christ because of what Jesus has done. We belong to him. We now, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now how much condemnation? No, zero, absolutely zero condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we don't fight from shame trying to earn favor. We fight from grace because Jesus has already forgiven us. He's already accepted us. Jesus talks about this idea a lot. There's a lot of pressure in our world and our culture 
towards sin. And so we need to hear what Jesus has to say and have some brothers and sisters that love us enough to come alongside of us, to be honest, to hold us accountable. Jesus loves you. He knows the end of the road to sin. So he's willing to get in our business to offer us his plan and his rules and his way forward. When you understand it, obey. And when you don't understand it, obey. Trust God's heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we, I'm, I'm so grateful, God, that you, you, you broached difficult topics and the things that maybe that no one else was willing to talk about but was eating everyone's lunch. You actually opened up and you, you taught about it and you get down to the deepest part of our hearts. God, you show us how the gospel has not just saved us from the penalty of our sin, but your teaching and your Holy Spirit, they save us from its present power as well. God, I pray that you would give some freedom today, God, to some men, to some women, to some kids that have have been led astray by their desires, by their lust. God, I just pray that you would, in a very powerful and supernatural way, give them hope Give them freedom, break the chains, give them accountability and friendships. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to trust your heart, to trust that your commands and your rules are always good. They're always for our good and for your glory and for our flourishing. God, I pray that you would remind us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Father, if anyone in this room needs to embrace you as their Savior, I pray that you might give them the grace um, to confess their need, uh, their need of you as a Savior and that you give them the faith to believe. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray this all through your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.